Uh, it's really amazing. I hope we never take it for granted that we have a book that uh, is the very words of God. The most important things he wanted us to know, this creator and sustainer of the universe, he's uh, put down in this book, black and white, explicit for us. Uh, it's quite a book. It's actually more like a library because it's got all different types of literature, all different types of stories and teaching, um, but they all are the very words of God, and, and so we take time. Certainly, uh, in light of that, it's important for us to take time in our worship to be before His Word, to spend time looking at it, learning. My job as a pastor, one of the key things that a pastor is called to do is to teach the Word, to proclaim the Word, and so it's my privilege to do this on most Sundays. So we are in Genesis, we're making our way through Genesis, um, and so I I would encourage you to open up to chapter 5 if you don't have a Bible. There are Bibles on the shelf over here in the Judson room. There are Genesis journals uh, available for you. If you're going to be here regularly, we would love for you to use and make your own. So Genesis chapter 5. As we turn there, um, I want to show you uh, a little bit about my family. Um, I have reason to believe that I am the 32nd Earl of Desmond. Desmond is an area in Ireland, so if you could show that on the slide. Um, so, and uh, wait, don't laugh. Just pay attention. So here's the family line, just so you know. So next slide, please. The Morris Fitzgerald was the first Fitzgerald. He and his family were good friends with William the Conqueror, so they came over with the Normans, conquered England, and then decided they wanted some more land. So they went to Ireland, and Morris uh, helped conquer Ireland, uh, and became a, his children became important people. One branch became the Earls of Kildare, which exists to this day, by the way. Uh, the other branch became the, the Barons, and then the Earls of Desmond, which is basically uh, all, almost all of Southern Ireland. So my holdings, part of my earldom, would be uh, Southern Ireland. Next picture, please. Uh, so beautiful Southern Ireland, multiple castles, like ten castles, and just all this area, part of my earldom. Um, for me, Paul Fitzgerald, so it's my mother's side, she's a Fitzgerald, Paul Fitzgerald Buckley, 32nd Earl of Desmond. So next slide, I just want to show you how this works, if you can see that. So it starts off with the last known Earl for sure was Gerald, Fitzgerald, quite a name, uh, the 14th Earl of Desmond, back in the uh, 1500s, he was the last Earl, he was removed um, and, and taken out of his earldom, it was taken from the family, and he was based in this, the city of Tralee, Ireland, and that's where my family's from. And so I can trace myself back to my fifth great-grandfather, um, William Fitzgerald of Tralee. And then he had a bunch of sons named Michael and Michael and Michael and another William and then my grandfather, uh, my great-grandfather William who came to the United States and then my grandfather John F. Fitzgerald and then my mother Donna Fitzgerald, now Buckley, and then me, named after the Fitzgerald, Paul Fitzgerald Buckley, 32nd Earl of Desmond. Right? Are you convinced? <laughs> You can, you, can just call, you can just call me Paul, it's okay. <laughs> so are you convinced that I am indeed the 32nd or so Earl of Desmond by what you see? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't be, just so you know. This is for illustration. What's missing in this 
this argument, besides my bold assertions? What's here? What, what's missing in the, in the, the storyline? Well, the last known one was the 14th Earl of Desmond, Gerald, right? And then the next one in my family line is William back in 17, what, 88 or so, whatever it is. I can't remember. Um, there's a big jump there, right? And, and there's no connection. So I can't really connect myself with Gerald, even though my line goes back in the city of Tralee uh, and so forth, but there's no clear connection. So I can't really boast about all the wonders of the Fitzgerald dynasty, which I could take time to do, which you don't want to hear. And the reality is, it's the most likely thing is that my ancestors who lived at the time of Gerald were probably Gerald's serfs who took on the name Fitzgerald uh, because he was, he was the Earl. Um, and so this is, it's, you know, having a little fun, but it's about genealogies. And today's message is about genealogies. It's an entire chapter of a genealogy, and you may wonder why. Why is there a whole chapter in the Bible? And there's actually multiple chapters on genealogies. Well, genealogies do some important things, illustrated by my story. They connect people. They connect lines. They connect famous people to other famous people, perhaps. They show the connection. They show the, 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 the solid, the complete line that goes from one to another. It connects those people. And there's reasons for those connections in Scripture, not just to boast in who you're related to. Also, they illustrate, they communicate things about a family. And if I were indeed part of the Fitzgerald family, I could tell you all sorts of things about this family and all the interesting facts about that. Now, I can't assert that to that level. But a genealogy, a clear genealogy would do that. So it connects and it communicates. And I think that's what you're going to see today as we look at Genesis chapter 5. This is a genealogy that connects people in significant ways and, and communicates things about those connections about the family line. And of course, God's designed this in his word for our benefit. This isn't uh, tri trivia on ancestry. This communicates key truths for us today. So let's pray, and then we'll dig into God's word from Genesis chapter 5. Lord, thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord, for this genealogy and the things that it communicates to us and the other genealogies we see in Scripture as well, and the meaning that's here. And I pray help us to learn from you. Help me, Lord, to teach this clearly, accurately, and in a helpful way. And ultimately, through this, Lord, that we would learn from you about you and your ways. You would be glorified. We would be built up. So come, Holy Spirit, be here with us as we are before your wonderful word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. 
When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and, he, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. God's word from Genesis chapter 5. Let's dig in to this genealogy. Learn about this family line, this family of faith. Learn about the connections in this family. Learn about the truths of God that are demonstrated here. So we're going to dig in. First, some background on genealogies. I think it's good to, to dig in a little bit. Genealogies are a little bit unusual for us, apart from ancestry worship, uh, research. Worship. Research, we, uh, we don't encounter genealogies a whole lot. Um, it, it is not common, right? So you, don't tend, you wouldn't read a, a news article on, say, President Biden and, you know, the first paragraph is, by the way, President Biden is, you know, descended from this person, this person, this person, going back all the way to Adam, right? You don't encounter that if somebody's introducing President Biden. Um, you don't meet somebody and you say, oh, by the way, what's your genealogy? Uh, we don't do that. Those are, those are foreign things to us. I would submit that part of that is that we are a society that's not built on our connections to history and to families. We are a society of meritocracy, as it's called, that... We all kind of stand on our own merit. We, we value that. And there are advantages to that, perhaps, and great disadvantages as well. So we're, we're not familiar with this whole idea of how are you connected to your past? How are you connected to family? And what's your family about? We don't think that way. But, but the Bible does. Biblical genealogies are here to establish key connections and key patterns of God's grace and faithfulness. They teach us things that we might miss otherwise. So we could look at genealogies in the Bible. There's lots of them. There are seven, actually, seven or more just in Genesis. And we'll quickly go through those just to, to see what's being said. But Jesus is introduced in the Gospels in Matthew and Luke with genealogies. So Matthew chapter 1 starts out the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Notice that 
verse, the way it's written, how it starts out, and how Genesis chapter 5, verse 1 started out. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. The same phrasing, and that's with intent. It's to show that this idea of, of God working through generations is important. And certainly important in the ultimate human being, Jesus, and how he is connected to the family of faith and, and the promises of David. And so that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 illustrates the connection between Jesus and David ultimately, but also Abraham and back to Adam, depending on which one you look at. And it uses that same phrase. It's another message unto itself. We could dig into the genealogy of Jesus. There's things to learn there. The connection to David is there. It's demonstrated in an artistic way. The, the, um, Matthew skipped over some generations, actually, if you do your research, in arranging that genealogy so that each segment of the genealogy is 14 generations. But there were more than 14 at times. And we need to understand, we, we live uh, in a culture that when you tell a story, you, your chronology and everything has to be strictly true. Uh, there's liberties that the authors of Scripture will take in trying to communicate truths, the artistic liberties perhaps, we would say, understand them as, to illustrate things. And so that genealogy you can look into is arranged in these groups of 14 to, to perhaps illustrate the, the perfection of each uh, phase of, of history and what God was doing. It's arranged in these interesting groups of 14. Also, there are people in that genealogy that are mentioned that may not be mentioned in other genealogies. They were present, of course, but some of the moms are there, like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And if you know your Bible history, all four of these women had some darkness in their past. And yet God works redemptively um, through them. And they are, they are the ancestors of the Christ. Just a, it's a picture, right? You see the connection between Jesus and David, but also the themes, how God works, that he's a God of redemption. He brings in people from dark places to himself. He rescues, and he makes their lives fruitful and significant in him. So we see genealogies elsewhere. Uh, as I said, Genesis has seven or more, and each of these genealogies actually marks a section of Genesis, a new part of the story. So Genesis uh, is, is really the story of the family line of faith, of God's dealings with humanity, and there are chapters that are marked off by genealogies. And so if, uh, if you were to just make your way through, you'd see, um, first we saw Genesis chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 6, these are the generations of Noah. Chapter 10, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem. Chapter, uh, chapter 11 further on, now these are the generations of Terah. Chapter 25, these are the generations of Ishmael. Chapter 25 again, these are the generations of Isaac. Chapter 36, these are the generations of Esau. Chapter 36 later on, another on Esau. And then chapter 37, these are the generations of Jacob. So over and over again throughout Genesis, the same format and then genealogies. They introduce another phase of God's redemptive work as he... Relentlessly, relentlessly pursues mankind as mankind wrestles and even succumbs at times, often, to the reality of sin in the serpent, as we saw introduced in this storyline. The sin and serpent that have invaded this temple called the earth, meant to be a place where we image God and, and worship Him and enjoy Him. And so Genesis is a storyline of, 
uh, that shows through these families God's relentless pursuit of redemption. Now some caveats to hit on when we talk about genealogy. Some important things, I think, to understand, to be aware of. There are some very spurious theories out there. Theories that are unfounded and misleading. And there's a long history uh, in, in the world of people trying to find hidden mysteries in the Bible. Um, a recent such theory claims that the names of Genesis 5 contain a hidden message about Jesus. Um, and maybe you've run into this. Uh, and what the, the author of this idea says is he looks at the different names here in our genealogy, and I think we have a chart to show. Um, he goes through these names, and you have uh, what he says, Adam's name meaning man, Seth meaning appointed, Enish meaning mortal, Kenan meaning sorrow, Mahalalel meaning the blessed God, Jared meaning shall come down, Enoch meaning teaching, Methuselah meaning his death shall bring, Lamech meaning the despairing, um, Noah meaning rest, and so he says this has a hidden meaning, man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down teaching, his death shall bring the despairing rest. So the gospel message in the names. It's kind of a cool idea, but it's very speculative. Because if you dig into the meanings of the names, sometimes in Scripture we know the meaning of the name. So when it says he was named Cain because of this, or named Seth because of this, or named Noah because of this, we know that. Otherwise, we're not sure. Um, names can mean different things. Just we go by our names, right? And, and yet we don't necessarily go around saying, I'm Mr. Tiny. That's what Paul means. Small, very small. Um, you know, you don't know me that way. I don't think of that. I'm Paul, right? So names necessarily don't mean uh, what their origins are. Uh, so we have to be careful with that. And then actually many of these names, we're not even sure of their origin. Uh, so it's speculative. So if we back up and actually uh, credit Michael Heiser, the late Old Testament scholar, just went out to be on went to be with the Lord recently. Michael Heiser uh, refutes this by showing that, that there's another table. So the next table, if you could show that. Um, Adam means, could mean, can mean man or ground, literally. Seth, appointed, yes, we think so. Enish is just a form of man. It doesn't mean mortal. Yes, it's often used when it's speaking of man's frailty, but it just means man. Kenan, we really don't know. Little Cain, maybe? Mahalalel is praising God. Jared is something about descending. We don't know. Enoch is designate. Methuselah, we don't know. Probably man of spear. Lamech, we have no idea what Lamech means. And the author of that original theory said, well, it sounds like lament. So we'll, we'll say it's lamenting. Well, that's in English it sounds like lament. Not in Hebrew. It's a different language. Uh, Noah, we know, we know from the text, does mean rest. It's, it sounds like the word for rest. Um, and so... This is the story we get out of, maybe a more careful interpretation. Ground, appointed man, little Cain, praising God, descend, designate, man of spear, Lamech, rest. It doesn't say a story. Um, and so we need to be careful with that. Um, we just want to be careful when we approach Scripture in these ways. And there, is, there are tendencies out there, like the Bible Code. I don't know if you've heard about the Bible Code theory. That, that if you assign numbers to the names and you start plotting it out, you can find all these things in Scripture, all these secret mysteries. Well, the same approach was applied to the novel Moby Dick, and they found in Moby Dick predictions of MLK's assassination, Adira Gandhi's, and Yitzhak Rabin's assassination in the book Moby Dick. I don't think 
I don't think um, that book was written with that in mind. And these, these theories are so, um, they're so loose that you could apply to anything and get what you want out of it. Um, this speaks to just an aspect of the character of God that I think is important for us to get. God's not a trickster. God doesn't have surprises in his word that you wouldn't expect. He's straightforward. Uh, we call the Bible revelation, right? Revelation is revealing something. It's giving us truth. God wants us to know truth. And the most important things are so clear. And we need to avoid the temptation to, to try to think that there are these hidden gems somehow that are uh, otherwise indiscernible unless you get into some sort of uh, you know, speculative mysticism. And yet, that's not what God does. And the Apostle Paul actually said that I, I, don't, I don't bring truth that way. I, I avoid that. Paul in, in, in 1 Corinthians 2 says, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preached a very simple, straightforward good news about Jesus. Christ died for our sins, he rose again. And he depended on God to make that clear to people in their souls without having fine arguments. He didn't want people to trust in the ability to find secrets that no one else could find. And so as we approach scripture, and I would submit as we approach life, that's the wise way to go about things. Um, the most important things that, that God wants us to know are clear. He's given us his great and precious promises in scripture. Um, that we can know them and live by them and, and grow in Christ-likeness as Second Peter chapter 1 talks about. So just some caveats on genealogies if you encounter some of those other theories and things like the Bible code. So you can think through and be careful and know that what God wants us to know is clear in Scripture. Well, let's take a look at some of the themes in our genealogy. First, you, you perhaps noticed right away when we started... Um, it, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. So it's bringing up that idea of the likeness of God that we saw earlier in Scripture. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then, verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. So the genealogy is starting out reestablishing the fact that we are made in the likeness of God. Mankind is created in the likeness, in the image of God. We reflect God in who we are. This is what makes us who we are. This is what makes us of, of infinite value. This is how, why murder is prohibited in Scripture, because we are in the likeness of God. And so this was reestablished here in chapter 5. Why would that be important? Well, we just got through chapter 4 last week, right? And chapter 4 is the story of the line of Cain, their first son, named uh, after the, the word for I got this, um, when Eve said, I've got a man with the help of the Lord. So Cain is named that way, and he demonstrates a life, really, of, of somebody who thinks they got it on their own. It's a terrible life. And his, his line is a line that gets worse and worse and worse. And, and then the story ends with Lamech and his children, and Lamech is the capstone, the seventh from Adam. He is the capstone of this corrupt generation, and his pride and his 
blatant bigamy uh, and his um, murderous pride as well. And so we've been through that story in chapter 4. We've seen the image of God contorted and twisted in the line of Cain, right? We've, we've seen something that started out so wonderful, so beautiful, so glorious. God displaying who He is uh, in so many significant, important ways and, and His goodness and His glory and his, the fact that He's a God of relationship by uh, displaying these things and by making us male and female to form this uh, cooperative relationship in the context of marriage and otherwise, to image God in His goodness and glory, to, to preside over His creation as priests and kings and queens. That's the, that's the story of chapters 1 and 2. And then chapter 4, chapter 3, we see the fall of man. Chapter 4, it gets darker and darker. So now chapter 5, we're going to move on with the story, but, but the author, Moses, wants us to, to put our eyes back on what God was about the, back in chapters 1 and 2. Notice that it never says about Cain's line that they're made in the likeness of God. That's not to say it wasn't true, but they had contorted that. And so now in chapter 5, talking about the line of Seth, this family line of faith, God wants to reestablish the fact that we are made in the likeness of God. And now Adam has a son in his own likeness. Well, what is Adam's likeness? Adam's likeness is the likeness of God. And so after his image is this son named Seth and this new line who is really going to, which is really going to bring hope to us in the storyline. After chapter 4, maybe you're very discouraged, and chapter 4 has a hint at the end, of course, about Seth and his line. Chapter 5 is to, to establish some hope, to know that there is a continuing plan that God has to indeed establish and restore His image in mankind. Now, we know the rest of the story beyond chapter 5. Ultimately, this was not just fulfilled through Seth and the line of faith, but ultimately through the second Adam, Jesus. He has come to restore the image of God fully. He is the image of God. And through Him and His life, He has paid for our sins through His life and His death, paid for our sins, offered us new resurrection life through simple faith in Him. And comes to restore the image of God. So Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in light of this restored image, in light of Christ, and really in an ultimate fulfillment of the hope that we see in Genesis 5, he says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new, Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Part of what Paul is saying there is right in line with Genesis chapter 5, verse 3. Christ has come to reestablish the image of God. And if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. They are remade in the image of Christ. And so we don't look at people like we might if we only read the story of Cain. We look at people in light of the story of Seth's line, in light of Jesus ultimately. And so when we see people, we don't see Cainites. We don't see people who are fallen merely. We see potential new creations in Jesus. We regard no one from a worldly point of view anymore. We don't look at people according to the flesh anymore. We look at them in light of Christ, in light of what He's doing, in light of their potential 
through simple faith in Christ to be remade and to be reestablished in the full image of God. This is how Paul operates and he's given us, God has given us the ministry, the same ministry of reconciliation. We are to look at people with that sort of hope and that sort of ministry. So the image of God is one key theme here. Now there's tension though, of course, God wants us to understand his whole truth. So in this storyline, another theme is kind of the other end of things, death. You heard it, I'm sure, as I read through it. Generation after generation, though they lived many years before the flood, uh, they lived many years, and that changes later on. Uh, though they lived many years, as, as long as, what, 969, I think, for Methuselah, they all die. There's not one of them. Actually, there is one. We'll talk about that briefly soon. Other than him, Enoch, they all die. And so there's that repetition of death coming from one generation to the next. Death is inescapable. The genealogy makes that plain. And this is a sobering and sad reality for all of us that we ought to take note of. It's important to face the reality of our impending death is a healthy thing. And the genealogy reminds us of that. A doctor who fails to communicate what the test results show, even if they're negative, is, is an unfaithful doctor who, who can be sued for not doing what he or she ought to do. And the diagnosis needs to be there so that there can be help brought. And Genesis 5 diagnoses the reality of mankind that we all die. Even if we live 969 years, we're going to die. They all died. Awareness of our impending death brings clarity to life. It's, it's like a spiritual cup of coffee that wakes us up and makes us realize what's happening and makes us think more clearly about life. It brings clarity to life. It, 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 it helps us to, to prioritize the things that are most important, right? When someone knows that they're going to die soon, if they have a, a year to live, they, they all of a sudden think about life differently. They order their priorities wisely. They discard the things that are less important. And of course, the most important thing that comes into focus is our need to be reconciled and rescued by God himself. Death forces us to face that reality. To look to God for help and, and to find the good news, the, the fact that there is a cure for death. Jesus told us that though we die, we, yet we shall live in him. He is the resurrection and the life. He has overcome sin and death. He died in our place and through faith in him, though we die physically, we'll never die spiritually. And one day when he returns, we'll, we'll come to life in the full form physically and spiritually with new bodies and live forever. This good news is, is precious to us, especially when we know that we will die. And yet we live in a culture that likes to pretend otherwise. We've become blind and resistant to the reality that each generation dies. Each generation is like a perennial flower that blooms in season and then quickly is gone and even forgotten. I've done some ancestry research and I think often about that, all these ancestors and I know so little about. And yet they lived, some of them, very long, full lives. Yet they died. This is the reality of living in the world 
because of sin and death. And being aware of our imminent death brings us wisdom. Genesis 5 gives us wisdom. Our New England forefathers understood this well. They lived in a time, by the way, when the mortality rate was much higher. And that's probably what helped them be aware of that. We live in a time when the mortality rates, thank God, are much lower. But the sad part of it is we, are, we have inoculated ourselves to this reality that we all face. No, no matter what uh, may happen with mortality rates, that the mortality rate is 100%. We all die. And our forefathers understood this. They actually, uh, they taught this. They lived it. They taught this to their children. I don't know if you've seen the New England Primer, this uh, book that was used to teach uh, spelling and and reading to children. Um, They taught their children about the reality of death. I I think we have overheads to show. Just some of the letters. We'll just look at T through Z. T, time cuts down all, both great and small. X, Xerxes the Great did die, and so must you and I. Um, y, youth forward slips, death soonest nips. These are rhymes elementary children would have memorized in learning their letters. We may think it's cruel, but it's not, because it was a reality for them at a young age. And this was written so that they would have a wisdom, beyond our years perhaps, and be ready. And look to the cure and look to Jesus. And if you look in the primer and other things that they would have been exposed to, the, the good news of Jesus is proclaimed. We need to have the same wisdom. And we mustn't let our lower mortality rates inoculate us from the reality of our looming death. So, how are you doing in that area? Is this really revolting for you? I think Genesis 5 would call you to to live in light of of this reality. I think also we're to instruct parents, our children, in this reality in an appropriate way, an age-appropriate way, but to make them wise this way as well, that we might live wisely with that clarity that this life will end. Even if it were 969 years, it will end in death. And we must face that and live in the wisdom of that understanding, that we might prioritize our life wisely, that we ultimately might look to Jesus who has overcome sin and death. When you know the reality of your death and then you know the good news, it it is all the more precious. Talk to believers who are on their deathbed and you'll find that to be true. The good news of Jesus is so precious. I believe we're called to the same perspective in our lives as well. Well, another theme that we see in this genealogy is the theme of faith. We see it throughout. This is a line, a family of faith from the beginning. Uh, Seth is the appointed one, and and they begin to call on the Lord, it says, in chapter 4, the end of chapter 4. And then throughout, we see people in this line, real human beings who live by faith. So let's just take a look in the remainder of our time at some of those people, just three of them. First, we, let's take a look at Enoch. We see him in verses 18 to 24. It describes Enoch as having walked with God. He, uh, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. And then, uh, and then verse 24, Enoch walked with God and, then, and he was not, for God took him. He lived 365 years, perhaps, uh, I mean a real number, but also perhaps symbolizing a, a full life cycle. 
Um, but God takes him. God takes him. He walks with God. He walks in communion with God. He believes in God. He looks to God in his weakness. He lives in light of the darkness of the world as well. Actually, we read about Enoch elsewhere. We read about him in chapter 11 of Hebrews. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This was Enoch's life. He believed that God indeed was the self-existent one, the creator, and that he was a God who loves to bless those who seek after him. And so Enoch sought after God by faith and walked with God in his life and had a friendship, a communion with God that was called walking with him. And God took him to himself without him having to experience physical death. One of only two people in the Bible uh, who, who did not die physically, Elijah being the other. Jesus didn't avoid death. He didn't have to though. He tasted death for us. He died in our place so that we need not die truly in him. But Enoch was taken up. Jude chapter, uh, Jude, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verses 14 and 15 speaks of Enoch as a prophet. And he spoke uh, to those in his generation who were evil and spoke of God's judgment. You can read there, about that there in Jude. So Enoch epitomized faith and faithful resistance to the evil of his age. And by the way, that always happens. To know God by faith is to know God in his ways and his goodness and glory. And that will always cause friction with a fallen world. It needn't be um, about us and about a personal vendetta or our pride. It ought not to be. It should be a, a thing where we are humble. But you will bump into resistance. And so Enoch in his day was a prophet who stood for the truth of God as he walked with God in a very evil generation. Next week we'll talk about that. Chapter 6. Things get even worse. Enoch walked with God and he was taken by God. And he's with the Lord. Enoch was a man of faith in the Lord who was not strong in himself, but put his trust in God, walked with God. We meet Methuselah in the story as well. Methuselah lives longer than anyone else in the Bible. Uh, Enoch's son is, I think, Methuselah, if I remember right, right? And he, uh, he lives, he dies in the year of the flood, and it's most likely that he was not killed by the flood because this line is a line of faith and the flood was a judgment. And he probably is a bridge from the faith of Enoch to God's answer in Noah. His life bridged the whole thing. And so it's a connection between what God is doing, the, the, the life of Enoch being a, a highlight and the life of Noah being part of God's deliverance. He's a bridge there. He lived 969 years in an increasingly dark time. I think the lesson of Methuselah is faithful endurance. It's tough to live in this world. And to have to live in it for 969 years is especially tough. And he endured. And from what we can tell, I think the inference is that he was faithful. And he's an example to us of faithfulness over the long haul. As he would have trusted in the Lord and walked with God as well. Sometimes God takes you out to be with himself early. Sometimes you are here a long time through a lot of trial. God is faithful either way. And 
we are called to the same faith. Well, Noah being the last one in the storyline here, he's last in this genealogy. He serves as a transition point in the storyline. He's named by his father Lamech. Lamech's probably a man of faith as well. Lamech knew the pain of living in a sinful, broken world, which was especially dark at this time. And so he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. He, he knew the difficulty of trying to make this thing work in a cursed world. And he looked to relief from the Lord, and so he named his son Noah, connected to the word relief. Noah is a, a son of promise here from a man of faith. Noah is God's answer to the difficulty, the problems, the evil that these others in the line of faith were facing as they cried out to God. Noah is God's answer to deliver them, to, to deal with the evil that's in the world. He is, a, he is a son of promise. Noah finds favor in God's eyes and lives by faith. We'll cover more about Noah later. He's a righteous man. He's blameless and a very blameworthy generation. Noah lived by faith. So these individuals in this family line are examples for us in different ways. Examples for how we live in a world that, that is often very dark and difficult. How we, in our weakness, cast our cares on the Lord, cry out to Him, live faithfully in light of His goodness and glory. Look to the sure hope that we have. They only knew in part what we know fully. Christ has come. Redemption has come. Rescue has come. And it's for us and for our world. And so we live with our hope in the Lord in these ways. We live with our eyes on Jesus. We live to share with others who are trying to make sense of this world as well that the only way to make sense in it is looking by faith to God in Christ. We live to share the good news. We live to demonstrate what the new life looks like, even though it won't be perfect till he returns. It is to be significant in, in our shared life together by faith. We walk as part of this family line of faith. And one day we will join them, all the family of faith, around the throne, celebrating God's deliverance and goodness to us. Celebrating his rescue. So this genealogy teaches us these things. It's all here in the storyline. In this family of faith. We, we, see, we see promise. We see reality of death. We see the call to faith. And through this, looking ultimately to Jesus, we see God's answer. So let us together fix our eyes on Jesus. Walk together with God and the footsteps of our spiritual fathers like Enoch and others who walk with God and lives forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your faithful work to rescue people, to grant the gift of faith through the generations. We're not alone. We thank you for the hope we have in you. And it's a sure hope guaranteed by Christ in his death and resurrection. It's a hope that we can extend to others. It's a hope that's a living hope that makes a real difference in how we live here and now.
We live knowing your kingdom already, though not yet fully. We pray you would teach us how to walk like our forefathers did, by faith and being faithful in a dark time. You are in control. You are building your kingdom even amidst this broken world, and we thank you for that. So use Genesis 5 in our lives to strengthen us and to equip us and to use us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.